last. And John was joking before we got started, like, hopefully not their last conversation. So hopefully this conversation won't end the marriage. Um, I, um, I have to say that I'm a huge fan of both Nana and John, who are at University of Chicago, where they don't have any light bulbs. Um, and I was reading, Dana, in a little interview uh, that you gave um, uh, of this quote, John courted me with spreadsheets and hypotheses. Um, which I thought was um, pretty funny. And um, John, of course, we know as an economist, Dana is a pediatric neurosurgeon by training, yes? Um, although now I think it's hard to define you, Dana. Do, do I have that right? Cochlear implant surgeon, pretty close to the brain, but I try to avoid the brain. Oh, but yes, yeah. cochlear, the ear. <laughs> that, that's actually probably pretty important. Um, and I think what, um, what unites this uh, unusual spousal team, and I actually, which is going to be, you know, part of our, our conversation today, and I'm about to turn the mic over to Dana to interview John um, about the insights in his you know, truly fantastic book, which I read cover to cover um, and um, and then reread, um, is, is the possibility of using uh, science and um, behavioral science in particular to make the world a better place. So thanks, John, for being here. Thanks, Dana. Katie will reappear um, at the end of this session and um, look forward to this conversation. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, absolutely. Um, Angela and uh, Katie, thanks so much. And thanks, everyone, for attending today. This is so this should be fun. <clears throat> John A. List and Dana Suskind. Maybe give us just a five-minute academic background of your book, and you can even pull in a little bit of the personal if you want. <laughs> that was not the question that we were supposed to start with, honey, but I'll, I'll go there. Um, so the academic roots actually run pretty deep. The, the wisdom from John Stuart Mill, all the way up to MacDougall, to Brunswick, to Campbell and Stanley. I'm sure there are people on here who have made deep insights in the area of external validity, George Lowenstein, Colin Kammerer, others within economics, Vernon Smith and Charlie Plott and others. And what the book tries to do is carve out what did we learn from those scholars, add some economic modeling, and look at the market for ideas and how we should think about scaling those ideas. And what that academic background led to was a series of, say, a dozen academic papers. And then I thought the job was pretty much done. There are academic papers on scaling. And I felt this was a good second half of my career, the first half use the world as my lab, use field experiments to learn about the real world and how we can change it. And then you go to the next project where in this case, it was more along the lines of let's figure out how to take those ideas, which we find are good in the Petri dish and scale them up. So now comes the personal side. Um, there would have never been a book had it not been for you. As you know, when you're, um, married to an alpha, when you have an alpha partner, uh, she insisted that I write a popular book that draws upon our academic work and draws upon some of my past experiences. So my past experiences included a, a baseball card trader or baseball card dealer in the late 80s and early 90s 
that's where I got my start actually. That's where I learned a lot of economics and when I was doing a lot of early field experiments. And then that thread of how to scale those insights, I was also faced with in, in the White House. And I was an advisor to the president about 20 years ago now. And I did that for a few years. And then more recently, I was a chief economist at Uber for two years. And now I've been the chief economist at Lyft for four years. And when my partner insists you should do this book and it ties into a lot of what I have lived, I said, let's give it a go. Let's write about the, the voltage effect and let's write about the science of scaling. No, I, lo I love that. I, you know, we both believe that science is not just for the ivory tower, it's for all of us. But why did you call it the voltage effect? Although I do like how your title looks on the book behind your head. Yeah, that, that's actually not a real book. It's just a, a picture. So it's not a giant book that's ready to fall on top of me, although maybe some people wish it would. Um, so the voltage effect is, is sort of what I would call close to an economic law. Now, in economics, we have laws like law of demand, law of supply. When I started looking into the data and started describing some theory with you and other co-authors, what you find is what you learn in the Petri dish or in the small is in many cases very different than what happens in the large. So the voltage effect is what is the difference between your outcomes or your program effects or your idea in the small versus the large. Now there are a lot of example, examples where there is a voltage drop. So what a voltage drop is, so for example, I started a pre-K in Chicago Heights with Roland Fryer and Steve Levitt, and we found great results in the Chicago Heights project. But a, there was a lot of skepticism about when we scale that, we're gonna turn that mountain into a molehill. So that's a, that's a voltage drop, and sometimes you have voltage gains. And a lot of it depends on five simple signs within your idea. And those are the signs that I talk about in the book. Let's dig a little bit deeper about the five signs, because let's face it, the science of scaling is a complex thing. Can you tell us a little bit more? And it feels like the third one really packs a big punch. Love to know. No, that's right, that's right. So I won't unpack all five, let's talk about the third one. And um, the first point to make is when I started working in this area, there was a lot of language in the business world about bake it till you make it, throw spaghetti against the wall and whatever sticks, cook it, move fast and break things. It was really art. And what I felt that we were able to do is add science, in particular economic science, and vital sign number three is really nice example because here it's really what I call horizontal scaling meets vertical scaling. So what I mean by that is when you have a result in one specific market, you might want to horizontally scale that to other unique or differentiated markets. And you have some features that you have to think about within that idea to be confident that you can horizontally scale. Now, on the other hand, vertical scaling is scaling up. So I have a great result in Chicago, wherein maybe I had to hire 30 teachers for my early childhood program. What will happen 
if you have to hire 30,000 teachers from the same input market. That's what I refer to as vertical scaling. So in the end, when you want to scale an idea, you have to think about what are the unique or non-negotiable inputs and are you hiring them from unique input markets or are they the same input market? That really matters a lot when you talk about the vitality of your idea. Um, no, that's great. You know, another other vital find that I really, really find interesting is spillover. I don't think we think about it a lot, and the stories around it, um, I think, were really super interesting from an economic and a psychology standpoint. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and some of the cool Uber stories that you have? Sure, sure, sure. So that's um, vital sign number four, and that's understand spillovers. Now, spillovers are really uh, multidimensional. So I talk about four different kinds of spillovers in this chapter or in these chapters in the book. And it really starts with something that Sam Peltzman talked about back in the 60s. It's, it's come to be known as the Peltzman effect. And this effect was after the federal government made seatbelts mandatory in motor vehicles. Guess what happened? people started to drive more aggressively. So they undid some of the good stuff that the federal government was trying to do in terms of lowering mortality rates in motor vehicles. That's one kind of spillover. I talk about several. Now on the other end of that extreme is something that economists call general equilibrium effects. And that's, you need to take account of your idea, not only in the Peltzman sense, but also through the lens of the market in a new equilibrium. So the example that I used there actually happened back at Uber. And this would have been something like January 27th of 2017. There is an immigration executive order that's put out by President Trump. And people, I don't know if anyone remembers on this on this call, but people went nuts. In fact, around JFK, the taxi cab drivers decided to strike. And whenever something like that happened, Uber turns off surge because they don't want to look like they're price gouging and they're trying to take surplus. So what happened, however, is that one taxi cab driver took offense to what Uber had done and he sent out a tweet that said, hashtag delete Uber. Now that effectively changed the makeup and composition of rideshare as we know it. You can say, well, why is that the case? Back then we had Lyft on the mat. Lyft was literally done. They had about 5% market share, maybe 10% in some markets, but we were killing them and they were basically waving the white flag. Well, what happened with the lead Uber is a bunch of customers and drivers left. And at the time, Travis Kalanick came to me. I was running um, Ubernomics. That was my team at Uber as a chief economist there. And Travis said, John, we need you to help get the drivers back. So 
What I proposed, amongst other things, is that we should have tipping in the app. So a lot of you might not know, but at this point in 2017, January 2017, at Uber, we did not have tipping in the app. So we argued for months, and eventually I won. And in the summer, my team was responsible for rolling out tipping in the app. So what we did is what any good economist or psychologist or experimentalist will do is beta test it with 5% of drivers in a market. That worked out in a brilliant way. Um, Those drivers made more money and they worked more. So it was a win-win. But then what happened when we rolled it out to all of the drivers in the market, something terrible happened. The labor supply curve shifted out. They all worked more. It shifted out so much that they drove around with empty cars more often. And this is called underutilization in the industry. And in fact, that shift out of the labor supply curve undid all of the positive wage effects that we observed in the 5% treatment. So essentially the market came to a new equilibrium. We had tipping, but that new equilibrium undid all of the good stuff that we had been finding in the 5%, the 10%, the 15% market. So that's something that you have to consider when thinking about your idea, and that's through the market setting. No, it is, it is the most fascinating finding, and if we had more time, I would love for you to tell them more about uh, the tipping and sort of the gender, the how it all plays out from a gender standpoint. But I, I won't, I won't uh, stop. Next is really the second half of the book, uh, which is equally interesting. With the first being really the the five vital signs for making scale. To, for allowing scale to happen. But then once you get scaled, how do you maintain it? And I love those four little secrets. Can you yeah. give us some hints on those secrets? No, absolutely. So, so you're right. The first half is about thinking of, about horizontal and vertical scaling and thinking about external validity and how we can ramp things up and what an idea should look like for policymakers or business people. And then the back half really takes stock of what I've learned both from the literature and in my time in government and academia and in the business world, which is essentially that there are four typical mistakes that people make and and one is around incentives. So here, this is chapter six of the book, I roll out non-financial incentives, I roll out framing. A lot of people on this call will, will be familiar with some of that work and I roll out the evidence around tipping, and I roll out evidence that isn't even in papers. It, it comes from the archives in Uber that we weren't able to publish as an academic paper, but for this particular book, I was able to get sign-off from Uber, so, so that's good stuff. And then from there, when talking about incentives, I then go to marginal thinking, and we all learn that in Econ 101, but what we don't learn is how to apply marginal thinking in the real world. And what I've seen is in every walk of life, people misapply marginal thinking in terms of they typically think about averages and they make decisions on averages. But 
you need to use thinner slices of the data to make a marginal type of, of decision. And that's what that chapter goes through. Then the next chapter is sort of sort of a fun chapter on quitting. And in fact, just a reporter this morning said, what does Angela Duckworth think about your chapter on quitting? Uh, because Angie, of course, is famous for grit. And I said, look, Angela must agree that grit is great, but that grit should be along dimensions that make sense. If you're not willing to quit or pivot or call an audible in your life, that's misplaced grit. So that chapter talks about the science. Thanks, Angela. The science of quitting. And there are some scientific facts that we don't quit early enough. And there are, there are good psychological reasons for that. Um, in particular, society and social norms tell us that quitting is bad. So if we wouldn't have called it quitting, we would have called it an audible or pivoting, we'd do more of it. The other part of it is that we tend to neglect opportunity cost of time. And this is a real problem because we tend just to think about our current situation and we don't take stock of how our opportunity set changes. And you can see that in data when people say, I moved because my boss doesn't appreciate me, or I moved because I got cross with a, a coworker. You should have just as often in the data, I moved because there's a better opportunity. I loved my current job, but there was a better opportunity and that lured me away. Get very little of that, whether it's a job, whether it's an apartment, whether it's a relationship, uh, heaven forbid with Dana. But um, the, the fact that winners quit is something that I think is, that, that we can install in every part of our lives. And then the last chapter there, the fourth little secret is how to build a good culture. And all of you know, as I, as I just mentioned, I lived through the Uber rotten culture days. And I've been in good firms and good organizations with great cultures. And I think building a culture actually starts with all of the behavioral insights that people on this call and others have created. Things like from the beginning, create a job ad where men and women are gonna be paid the same. Looking at the production function and showing that diversity really does pay. So this is all about what are the features that we as behavioral scientists, how can we help firms and what should firms be doing to build a great culture from the very beginning? So those are the four little behavioral economic secrets in the second half of the book. I, I love that. And just for anyone, if they wonder, does John put these ideas into practice with our eight children? He absolutely does. Um, which takes me to the next question. Um, You've worked in many different uh, areas. Obviously, academia has always been the mainstay, but you've been in government, you've worked in the private sector. You know, how do the scaling ideas differ and do the cultures differ? I mean, you say culture matters, does it differ? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So, there are important threads that link what we do in governments with ideas, what we do in the academy, what we do in the business world. And that's what I try to tie together with the five vital signs. But there are important differences too. So in government, we typically have a lot more at stake when we adopt 
in scale ideas. And the reason why is because in many cases, it's really hard to reel back in a policy that we've scaled up. So if you think about any particular program or idea that the government has implemented based on a benefit cost analysis to say we should do it, they roll it out. They might not find out for years, three to five years, if it's working. And at that point, you have very entrenched interest in, hey, you can't take that away. I'm getting some economic rents. So it's very hard to reel back in many policies unless they're sunsetted. And most policies aren't sunsetted. Whereas in the, in the private world, many cases it's very different. You try an idea in Seattle and you can reel it back in quickly. I, I talk about an idea that Netflix had and, and Reed made a big mistake there and he could reel it back in before he was torched. At, at Uber, we had some bad ideas. Thankfully, we could reel them back in before we got torched. So it matters what you scale in the business world, but in terms of reeling it back in, you can make more mistakes because you can be more nimble in changing. Now, in terms of the cultures, both of these, where I work in, in the federal government and then in the business world, one big inefficiency that I see are, are the silos that all these organizations put up. And what I mean by that is within Uber, we had you know seven to 10 major areas or orgs, and they all build silos that they're in charge of marketplace, for example, and they have all the data and they have all the ideas. And what they learn typically is not teaching other people and other people have a hard time teaching them. So siloed organizations that happened in the White House too, when you have agencies and even people within agencies, and that's what I see as a major inefficiency in terms of the cultures or getting good ideas out is that there's really not enough cross-fertilization across all of these orgs. No, that, that's great. You know, we only have about two more minutes left before questions. Um, can I ask you just one quick question? Because I sure. think it's super interesting. I mean, we're, we're all, you know, you're an academic, but an interesting thing that I've noticed is that CEOs, you know, Chrysler, Amazon, United, Lyft are coming to ask you for practical advice, you know, even startup founders. You know, has this always been the case? Um, no, that's a, that's a good point. What I see, I started as an academic, as a graduate student in the early 90s, and back then when I talked to colleagues, the typical relationship between an academic and the business world happened through being an expert witness. So some uh, Microsoft or Apple or whomever is sued by the FTC for antitrust violation and they bring in people like Dennis Carlton, Jim Heckman, Gary Becker, etc. to be expert witnesses. But, but that's not doing science, right? right? That's basically trying to grab rents from another side. So back then there, there was interaction but it wasn't the same as the interaction that I, I now see. What you see now, and it's slowly evolved, is that firms are beginning, 
and governments are beginning to take more stock in the fact that data is their most valuable resource. And they're starting to partner more and more with people like all of us who can generate data and who can answer questions and talk about the whys behind things. I, I think in a decade or so, nearly every firm should have a chief economist, a chief psychologist, a chief scaling unit. We have nudge units now. So I, I see that doing nothing but opening up more and more. And that's great for science because that's going to give us a lot of new opportunities to unlock the secrets that firms have. That's awesome. You didn't say chief surgeon. That's the only thing. <laughs> we have enough of those. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's open it up for the questions because there's some amazing questions. Um, so one of the first was from Max Bazerman. Um, and he hey, asked, Max. How you doing? Yes. Are the majority of voltage effects limited to magnitude effects? Or stated in a different way, what percentage of voltage effects are actually directional changes yeah. in the effect between variables? No, that's a great question. So Max, what I've always argued is many experiments will deliver correct qualitative insights. And that's important, important when we test theory, important when we think about directions. But in many cases, we also want to know something quantitative whether it's a price elasticity of demand or whether we should invest in something, et cetera, et cetera. There are, most of the voltage effects are indeed ones that go from something really large to something really small. But there are cases where you have something that looks negative. Think about Facebook or goods that have network externalities where they actually look negative in the Petri dish, but because of network externalities, they can become positive. Now, you also have cases where you have economies of scale. So, vital sign number five talks about the supply side of scaling, and vital signs one, two, three, and four are the demand side or the benefit side. Vital sign number five talks about the supply side because we should always worry about both benefits and costs. And there are a lot of examples where it doesn't look good for this idea or this program until you reap economies of scale. And after you reap economies of scale, then it does flip like that. So that, that's going a little bit different than I'm in the lab, I find that A is better than B. Do I think A is going to be better than B in other settings? Most of the time in the simple situation, what I find is it is. That's comforting. But there, when you add economics and add both sides of the market and add equilibrium, there are a lot more of those cases that actually flip. And those are the interesting cases in terms of what we want to scale and what ideas are going to work and which ones won't. But it's a good question, Max. Thanks. Wonderful. All right, next question. I think I'm pronouncing the name. Eamon Colvin asks, are there any notable differences between scaling good scientific ideas versus good business ideas? I like that. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, a lot of times I hope that a lot of the good business ideas are coming from science and coming from us. The, the, the big thing that I will note is that the knowledge creation market in science, so that's where we started. We said, let's model the knowledge creation market and talk about 
what are the incentives that academics face? And our objective function that we wrote down is, you want to maximize a, a, let's say, two components of your objective function, which is, I want to create results that are replicable. That's component one. But I also want to create results that are, have large treatment effects. So I get in good journals, um, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that, those incentives, you can see right away that if you don't have all of your weight on replication, the scientific knowledge creation market is going to reveal a result that simply will have a voltage drop, all else equal. Now, when you go to the business world, you don't have that exact same thing going on, but you have something very familiar going on. That if you have an idea, you tend to test it yourself, and then you tend to ship it, and then you get incentives back for it. So in a way, they're, they're, they're the same variables, but they end up essentially leading to the same types of problems, and that's the incentive problem that we face. So by and large, scientific, in terms of scaling humans and human results, are very similar in many regards what we do in the lab or in the field experiment versus what's happening at Lyft and Uber, and I work a little bit with Walmart as well, and United, etc. It is the same machinery that you're rolling out, and a lot of the same insights cross. And I think you'll see that in the book. I, I try to bring insights from all of those areas to show how there are, are deep parallels. Go ahead, Danes. Perfect. Um, so I'm sort of bringing two questions together. A few, a few people have questions about government putting ideas into practice. Specifically, David Carp asked if you could talk about governments focusing on the last dollar spent to deliver more services to citizens. And Taka Nishimura um, asked whether the voltage effect has impacted some failed attempts to reform education. Yeah, yeah, these are two great questions. So, so let's talk about the first. So I think a first point about government taking up our ideas um, when you look at it, we're on the wrong side of this, right? We have a wealth of ideas and programs that we as academics have shown actually work. And then you get put in the, the political grinder and you have political will and you have arguments there about what exactly should we scale. Now, I think part of the reason why we are not listened to as much as we should be is because there are a lot of cases where we sell ideas that should never be sold. These are ideas that either they don't have voltage or it works for a really small slice of the population and we're selling it as something that is gonna have great impact. And then policymakers roll it out and if they have a way to test it, it just doesn't work. And then we're stuck with a turkey for a policy. Now, I think in that world, we begin to develop a lot bigger seat at the table if we can say, look, we tested it once in an efficacy test, we kicked the tires, and we did some policy-based evidence, which what I mean by that is bring back the constraints at scale to the Petri dish and do some causal moderation. And when you explore that causal moderation, do it in a way that you're testing, will this thing actually scale? 
I think when we can have a lot more confidence in, say, in saying, look, I'm using science not only to figure out if the program works, but I'm using science to show you that this will scale. In the past, it's been pearls before swine, right? So the pearls are, you get to be innovative and produce a great program, and then you go on and produce another program, and then the swine is implementing and scaling it. That can't be, it can't be because then we leave too many pearls on the sideline. That swine really is like a diamond because that's how we turn great ideas in the Petri dish into great ideas that affect the world. Now, in terms of early childhood and education, really one of the reasons I got involved in scaling is because when we started our early childhood program in Chicago Heights with three, four and five year olds back in 2008, we ended up getting some great results. And by 2014, I wanted our program to scale. And policymakers told me, look, John, that's great, but we don't think it will scale. And I said, why? And they said, it doesn't have the silver bullet. And I said, well, what is a silver bullet? Where, where can I buy a dozen of them? And they said, well, we just don't know it, but the implementation scientists tell us that it's fidelity, but we're just not sure. So at that point is when we really rolled up our sleeves and started to explore, A, are they right? And they were right. There's a voltage effect in a lot of cases. But B, you can put science around that. In an early childhood, you have two very different types of scaling exercises. One is, it worked in Chicago Heights. Can it work in Dayton? Can it work in New York? The other one is, it worked in Chicago Heights, which is a suburb of Chicago, and now can I sprinkle it all throughout Chicago and scale in the same input market? And I think the, the education, and early education, post-secondary, whatever, in many cases, a key non-negotiable or a key input to your idea will be humans. And what the data keep teaching me is that humans don't scale. So if your idea is relying on a unique human, it won't work at scale. You need to go back to the Petri dish and develop something new that will work with the humans who you can hire. And that chapter, I, I, I title it, is it the chef or is it the ingredients? Because there are just great examples about restaurants that try to scale and they will fail if the initial secret sauce was the chef. They will make it if the secret sauce was something like the ingredients, if they can replicate those ingredients at scale. That runs through all public policies as well. That's great. Uh, uh, a related question by Colin Myers. You know, what is the biggest barrier to experimentation you've seen in organizations? And what are some of the ways you've been most successful in convincing them otherwise? Yeah, great question. Answer. <laughs> no, no, I love that question. Um, so let me talk about a few general things. One, never say the word experiment, because the minute you say the word experiment, you are probably done. Um, say pilot, uh, say trial, and, and these things work well. Now, what I've learned in organizations is that if you don't have the ear of a very powerful person early on, you're probably done. You should probably pivot. 
Another thing that you learn very quickly about organizations is that some people already have all the answers and they don't need data, but you still need them in your corner sometimes. So those are people, of course, who you have to work with and develop ideas in concert with them. But what I found primarily is that when you start with an organization, they tend to have mounds and mounds of data already on hand. If you can go in and beat up some of those data and give them learnings and give them simple things, you know, from these data, they suggest you should do A, B, and C. But we might do D, E, and F, but we need an experiment to complement those data. That ends up being very successful for nearly every organization that I've worked with. And it's because there's kind of a, a warm-up period and analyzing their data, a lot of the times the way we look at data is very different than the way their data scientists or their machine learning algorithms are looking at data. And we can add a lot of value just without new data. I mean, one of our first papers with Chrysler is in the Journal of Political Economy. And it was about learning by doing. And those were data that they had lying around that they said, you know, we always suffer a lot of productivity declines when we switch car models. And, and they ended up having beautiful naturally occurring data across their 31 plants. And we said, voila. So we did that for them and, and taught them how learning by doing works. And then that led to a huge uh, stay well health health and wellness experiment, which I talk about in the book that Tom Lasorda was a CEO at the time, and he wanted to scale up our health and wellness finding immediately, but it was a big false positive. So I talk about how I had to talk Tom Lasorda off the ledge of, uh, of scaling that, uh, that health and wellness idea. That's great. Well, we have about one minute. Uh, and so I'll try to do this quickly. How do you learn to see around corners so that you can imagine the spillover effect? Um, what helps you do that? Yeah. Probably not a one minute question. No, no, yeah, let's talk for a few hours and have a cup of coffee, right? Um, no, you know, I think a little bit of it is experience. I think part of it is you'll see all of my experience in this book. And I think nearly every time, I think 99.99% of the scaling issues are in the five vital signs. And if you look at those five vital signs and do a pre-op about what does my idea have in terms of these features, I think you're gonna get a long way down the path of whether your idea or program is scalable. Now what they'll also tell you is that if there's a flaw or two, that's okay if you still want to scale it. Um, my dad is a, is a trucker. My grandpa was a trucker. My brother is a trucker. Right? One man, one truck, one good life. They understand their secret sauce is the Augies. They're all named Augie. So scaling won't work for them. That's okay. So you don't invest in the idea like it's one that can scale. If it has two or three flaws, that's fine. You can still scale that and change the world. But the idea is maybe change a few features of your program or your idea, and then maybe you can capture and change the world to a greater degree than if you wouldn't have pivoted. That's what I hope the book helps people with, is thinking through ideas in terms of scalability. That's perfect. Well, we are at 
time. It goes so fast. <laughs> amazing questions and so much fascinating research to back up all um, all of your answers. John, thank you. First, I should just say thank you for all you do for our field. Um, you have, you know, inspired so many people to do uh, incredibly exciting research. You've inspired so many companies to change the way that they operate. And it's just really exciting to all of us that you have this fabulous book out there so that a broader audience can appreciate and learn from all your brilliant ideas. So thank you for the work you do. And thank you to you and Dina for, for coming and joining our authors event at BCFG and enlightening everyone about, um, about your book. Andy, thanks so much. Uh, feelings are mutual. Um, really appreciate your friendship and now your co-authorship coming up soon with Walmart. Um, and, and thanks so much, everyone, for, for arriving today. We're very grateful. And I have one last announcement to make just for folks who are looking forward to a next event. Uh, we hope you will join us for our, our next gathering, which will be actually, it's a ways off. It's on Friday, April 29th at noon Eastern. And we'll be talking to Dilip Soman of the University of Toronto and Nina Mazar of Boston University, who are co-editors of a forthcoming book called Behavioral Science in the Wild. I think, John, you will like this one too. So Absolutely. <laughs> hope to see you both there. I hope to see everyone um, there. And thank you again for a fabulous conversation. Katie and Angela, thank you. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. Be safe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was, what was that? What was I just at? That was at this, um, okay, uh, da, 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 da. I gotta look in my, oh, right. First, I'll say, I don't really know what all that is in terms of the private versus the public, I can understand that. And I also can understand um, the learn by doing. What he said, learn by doing, was really, uh, that's what I'm doing in government. And that's what I'm hoping I can encourage other people to do. And I know that it sometimes feels like, well, I didn't get a manual for this. Um, but I also liked what he said, one man, one truck, one good life. Because I have some truckers in my family too. So I wrote a lot of, like a page and a half, about the voltage effect, alpha, field experiments, popular book, baseball cards, Uber, Lyft, economies, science of scaling. So much I've got going on here. But another part that was like a little thin, thin slice that I'll just sort of uh, talk about before I... I close this episode out is that um, what he said about quitting you know I um, don't want to feel like they have to ask me to leave and and this is one of the things about like it's been bothering me I guess because the resident in the village uh, told me uh, that they had invested a lot of training in me and so I sort of was required to continue to run for council and as much as I do have a lot of gratitude for the training that I have received I've taken the local government leadership academy level one course or you know completion I got that certificate I've been with the FCM uh, MCIP the municipal climate innovative program and that was something that was uh, 
you know, wasn't something that was paid for except for with my time. And still I got a certificate for that, but there was other things that the village uh, residents do pay for me to do. And one of those things was the compassionate integrity course that I took with Diane Kaylin Sukra. And I, I guess I kind of resent that, you know, I owe this community my time because I can quit any time. You know, I'm able to put my house up on the market and move somewhere that is more willing to um, move forward. You know, I I recognize now in this sort of uh, campaign time between my first and second terms, as I expect, um, because I am confident in my ability to work through some of these things and learn by doing. Uh, But I also see how there's a big attitude of let it be like less is more. And I, um, I can understand that's one of the things that sort of attracted me to this place where there was this like time warp, you know, and I kind of feel like at some point, like we can continue slashing, uh, you know, the operational budget so that we're able to, um, prepare for the end of the prior year surplus in the budgeting uh, because those are coming to an end. There is no more prior year surplus. There is not even a kind of sustainability in the, um, the operating budget where we, like last year, we had to put up the utility rates because for many years uh, they had been Uh, being supported by the property taxes. So that's one where we're stealing from Peter to pay Paul and we're having to take money from property taxes to pay for utility rates instead of put the utility rates up. And there are definitely like, I I remember when I had um, MLA Babchuck on my podcast and I was talking about all the things that I want or hope to, you know, move forward uh, during my time on council here in Tassis, but I I remember her saying something like, well, people aren't expecting a bus when they move here, and, or like, that people know what they're getting when they move to the country, and, and what is it that they're getting? They're getting less services, they're getting, you know, um, no garbage pickup, they're getting no toilet flushing, they're getting, you know, be, you're on your own, you're an island, and you have to do it all yourself, and there's no public roads, and there's no water or sewer, and there's no community, and that's not what's, what it is here. Uh, there is a lot of community, there's a lot of people pulling together, um, and it is far off, off field, so there's, you know, various, um, ideas of what paradise is to individuals. So I think that um, as much as I am grateful for all the training that I got, one thing that this guy, who I've already forgotten his name, that's so embarrassing, um, just was talking about was I'm not going to be, um, you know, I'm not going to quit too late. I'm going to say this isn't working. I've been called names like difficult or self uh, important. Like I, I'm just taking these courses so I can benefit myself. You know, I don't need to take a course 
about compassion and integrity, I'm already very good at this. I've already gravitated towards being compassionate in my day-to-day. I don't need to, as a village councillor, be involved in food security uh, and, um, you know, bringing, delivering food for the Knights of Columbus hampers or for the uh, uh, St. Vincent de Paul or uh, for the Seniors COVID Relief Food Bank. I don't need to be involved in that. That's not part of my job description. That's something I choose to do. And, and I just sort of need to also highlight that during this time when I'm this counselor for people, I have had to have some boundaries and had some people show up on my doors and I've had to turn them away. And that's sort of like the darker side that no one wants to talk about. I also know how in a few instances, the code of conduct has been used as a weapon uh, against dissent. And and I, I understand that it will be used against people like me, people like me who are trying to innovate and trying to see what is possible. So I, I hope that uh, I haven't, you know, offended any uh, residents of Tassis by sort of saying I can quit whenever I want um, because I can and I want to have that agency over my own life. Uh, being a village of Tassis counselor is very important to me. But one of the things that I will say is that it's not the most important thing. Um, you know, I'm a daughter, I'm a mother, I have a spouse and I have, uh, you know, a homestead. So there's definitely a lot of other things that sort of take the cake and those need to work for me first before I can work for my community in any way. I feel like even before I was elected, I was somebody who, uh, at the pancake breakfast, I became a waitress because, you know, people wanted coffee and I was capable of bringing it to them. And I learned a lot working with Deborah there about asking people to put their mugs down on the table before I pour the hot coffee so that their hands don't get burned. And that isn't the first, you know, episode of Sarah Serves. Uh, so I'm going to keep doing these like recordings. Uh, this was sort of like a book and a uh, a class in the sense that I learned um, about about uh, behavioral insights, which is something that I've been sort of like dabbling or learning in uh, for the past little while since I was um, turned on to it by Carl Jensen, uh, who is also a counselor somewhere. I've forgotten though. Sorry, Carl. Anyway, so that's my little rant or my little um, uh, take on this uh academic paper slash private company, Uber economist, uh, you know, learn in a small Petri dish. I feel like that sort of speaks to what we're doing here. And I also feel like a mountain into a molehill really works for me. So thanks for listening to the Waterfowl podcast. This is Sarah Fowler and I am broadcasting from the Green Antler in the village of Tassis, which is in Nootka Sound on the west coast of Canada. And I hope to uh, talk to you all again soon. So have a really nice day and uh, think about how things scale up in your own life. Bye-bye.